Hey everyone, thanks for joining me. The Day the Music Died. Immortalized in Don McLean's opus American Pie, which pines for America's innocence and documents its decline through the 60s. Ending with Charles Manson, The Hells Angels, and Altamont. But tonight, we're focusing on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Big Bopper Richardson, Richie Valens, and Buddy Holly, and the plane crash that took them away and marked the end of rock and roll's first era. Let's venture back to that cold day in February. Welcome to the Music Scope. The song American Pie is about the loss of the Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and Buddy Holly, and the continuing aftermath that followed. It's a poetic journey through a generation's changes alongside rock and roll throughout the 1960s. But it's also a riddle to be studied. For a long time, I didn't know why February made him shiver while he was delivering papers, or who the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were supposed to be. Or why does good old boys on the levee would say that it would be the day that they'll die. Why is all this stuff so dramatic and important? Well, the plane crash that inspired the song marked the cultural end of rock and roll's first incarnation. It also was an event where everyone who was a fan knows where they were when they heard the news. It was also the end of three artists who were innovative and on the verge of doing so much more. Let's start with them. J.P. Richardson started life in Sabine Pass, Texas. The son of an oil field worker and his wife, J.P.'s family moved to Beaumont, Texas, where he began his career radio at KTRM. He continued to work at the station throughout college. J.P. left his schooling to pursue radio full-time. Although shy and reserved in his personal life, J.P.'s on-air personality was much larger His deep baritone and use of teenage slang made his on-air appearances popular, and he worked his way into his own show in the 3 to 6 p.m. slot. This is where his Big Bopper persona first gained notoriety. At the time, novelty records were very popular, and Richardson recorded Purple People Eater Meets the Witch Doctor for a regional independent label, D Records. The record sank without a trace, But the B-side gained traction on radio and was sold to Mercury Records for national distribution. Chantilly Lace was a nationwide smash, and Richardson became known for his exciting stage performance of the tune, where he would speak into a telephone during the song, acting out the lyric. He would go on to have other charting singles, including Little Red Riding Hood and Big Bopper's Wedding. He would also gain status as a songwriter, He wrote hits for other artists, including Running Bear for Johnny Preston and George Jones' first big hit, White Lightning. A rarely cited fact about Big Bopper was his foresight into the world of music videos. He actually coined the term music video and filmed a performance of Chantilly Lace. He predicted that in the future, it would be common practice for musicians to record performances of their songs. Although it was somewhat hidden from the public, 
Richardson was a happily married man with two children back in Texas. He had left his job at the radio station when Chantilly Lace received national attention. To support his young family, he toured constantly. In early 1959, he was offered a spot on the Winter Dance Party, a tour that offered $800 a week. That would be equal to roughly $8,000 today. It was a sum that he just couldn't pass up. Richie Valens was born Richard Stephen Venezuela on May 14, 1941. He was raised in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles by his parents, who had emigrated from Mexico. Richie showed an interest in music at an early age. Encouraged by his father, he learned guitar, trumpet, and drums. While he was in junior high, there was a mid-air collision over his town of Pacomia. Debris from the crash landed on the school playground, and it killed several of Richie's friends and instilled a lifelong fear of flying in him. At 16, Valens joined his first band, playing the guitar. When the singer left, Richie stepped in and took over. He would often improvise lyrics and extend songs with new riffs. His proficiency on the guitar and the blending of rock and jump blues with traditional Mexican mariachi influences created a regional buzz. That caught the attention of Bob Keane, who signed Richie to Delphi Records in May of 1958. Soon after, Richie recorded his first songs at Gold Star Studios with members of the famed Wrecking Crew. Musicians backing him up included bassist Carol Kay and drummer Earl Palmer. His first release was Come On Let's Go, and it gained national attention. The next release was a double A-side, featuring his ballad Donna about his girlfriend Donna Ludwig and a rock arrangement of La Bamba, a traditional mariachi song. The release was an absolute smash, and Richie became a star at the age of 17. By the end of 1958, he had left high school to focus on touring and recording. His lasting influences felt through the Chicano and Latin rock genres, inspiring such artists as Los Lobos, The Lost Lonely Boys, and Carlos Santana. His work as a guitarist has been significant, infusing Spanish and flamenco styles with rock and roll. He would be the youngest member of the Winter Dance Party Tour and the youngest to lose his life. Born in Lubbock, Texas on September 7, 1936, Buddy Holly grew to become one of the most important figures in rock and roll. He was born into a musical family where everyone aside from his father was able to play a musical instrument. His brother brought a guitar home when he returned from World War II and young Buddy was inspired to play it. His early influences were chiefly country music. He listened to the sounds of Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers, Hank Snow, Bob Wills, and the Carter family. In elementary school, he became friends with Bob Montgomery, and they formed the duo Buddy and Bob. In 1952, at 16, Buddy and Bob started to play on the Sunday party show on local radio station KDAV and started playing to live audiences. Buddy and Bob would stay up and listen to late-night R&B radio. Sitting in Bob's car, the pair would tune in to distant radio stations that could be picked up after local transmissions had stopped. Buddy began to blend these new sounds with the country and western influences of his youth. In February 1955, Buddy Holly saw Elvis Presley perform in Lubbock, Texas. The performance inspired Buddy to shift from country music into full-on rock and roll. 
After graduating high school, Buddy decided to pursue music full-time. In October, Buddy opened up for Bill Haley and his Comets and impressed a Nashville talent scout, who was so impressed that he convinced Jim Denny, manager of the Grand Ole Opry, to sign Buddy to a recording contract. His first session was for Decca Records, and while it was exciting, it left Buddy frustrated with the lack of creative control. For the recording, the producer used session musicians over Buddy Holly's band and chose the arrangements for them to play. In April of 1956, Decca released Blue Days, Black Nights as a single, but it didn't make an impact whatsoever. Decca informed Buddy that they would not renew his contract and that he could not record any of the same songs for any other company for a period of five years. After his experience with Decca, Buddy was down, but he was determined to make music on his own terms. He found new inspiration in radio hits such as Party Doll by Buddy Knox and Jimmy Bowen's I'm Sticking With You. Both songs feature a country-inspired flavor and a bouncy guitar-driven rhythm. He reached out to Norman Petty, who had produced both singles, and soon after the pair recorded That'll Be The Day at Petty's studio in Clovis, New Mexico. With Buddy on lead guitar, Joe Maudlin on bass, Nicky Sullivan on rhythm guitar, and his high school friend Jerry Allison on drums, they released the song under the name The Crickets on the Brunswick label. They had to use the name The Crickets since Buddy was not allowed to record any songs that he had recorded for Decca previously. As it turns out, Brunswick was a subsidiary of Decca, and most legal issues were resolved. Brunswick would continue to release singles for the Crickets, while Coral Records, another subsidiary of Decca, would release music under Buddy's name. That'll Be the Day climbed to the top of the U.S. R&B chart, and it made a huge impact in England, where it went to number six on the U.K. singles chart. In September, Coral released Peggy Sue with Every Day as the B-side. Peggy Sue climbed to number three and brought Buddy Holly even more international attention. The Crickets appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show on December 1st, 1957, performing That'll Be The Day and Peggy Sue. Buddy Holly was one of the first stars to sport a Fender Stratocaster as his main guitar. This helped Fender gain popularity and become one of the most iconic instruments in the rock and roll era. Another unique quality was the way he contrasted with flashy performers like Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, and Little Richard. With his heavy frame glasses and humble stage presence, Buddy came across as someone you would know from your hometown. He was relatable and helped thousands of kids imagine that they too could be on stage, including a young John Lennon and Paul McCartney, whose band name, The Beatles, was inspired by The Crickets. In fact, the first song The Beatles ever recorded together was a version of That'll Be The Day. Aside from his onstage persona, Buddy was different in that he focused on songwriting and would express his desire to explore other types of music, including flamenco and soul music, even talking about doing a collaboration with Ray Charles. Throughout 1958, Buddy Holly and the Crickets worked at a frantic pace. They toured the world, often putting on two shows a night. They also continued to record and issue hits like Oh Boy, It's So Easy, and Rave On. During a visit to a music publishing office in New York City, Buddy Holly met the receptionist, Maria Santiago. He asked her out that day and proposed to her on their first date. By August, they were married. 
Holly's manager, Norman Petty, disapproved of the wedding because he felt it would alienate Buddy's female fans. Buddy had begun to question Petty's money handling, and he controlled all revenue earned by the band. Maria began to accompany the Crickets on tour. Her official title was secretary. She handled the band's equipment, logistics, even their laundry. But she also collected revenue and kept the money with them instead of transferring it over to Petty. Holly hired a lawyer and began the process of reclaiming his royalties. In the fall of 1958, having relocated to New York to be with Maria, Holly returned to Clovis, New Mexico for a recording session. While there, he produced a session for Lubbock, Texas DJ Waylon Jennings. Buddy had become interested in production, especially in expanding the production values of his songs, and he even recorded four of them with an 18-piece orchestra that October. It would end up being his final recording session. In December, Buddy Holly finally left Norman Petty as his manager. The Crickets stayed with Petty, but their split with Buddy was amicable. Buddy had settled in New York, and the Crickets remained in Texas, and they would continue to record and perform for years to come. In January 59, Buddy Holly was set to go on the Winter Dance Party Tour. He needed money because his assets were frozen due to litigation with his former manager. No longer having the Crickets, he assembled a new band, and it included Waylon Jennings on bass. Waylon stayed at Maria and Buddy's apartment before he and Buddy met with the organizers of the tour. The tour would begin in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on January 23rd. The tour was set to cover 24 cities in 24 days throughout the Midwestern U.S. The organizers were in such a rush to get the tour on the books, they booked whatever venues they could, wherever they could. This caused the tour to zigzag all over the Midwest, sometimes double-backing on itself. Now, this was before most of the interstates had been built, and some stops had distances of up to 400 miles between them on winding back roads. They also had not considered the freezing temperatures of the Midwestern winter. The tour's transportation was reconditioned school buses, and they did not have adequate heat. Both Big Bopper and Richie Valens became sick. The tour's drummer, Carl Bunch, caught frostbite in his foot and had to leave the tour. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and Dion took turns playing drums for each other's sets. On February 2nd, the tour stopped at Clear Lake, Iowa for a negotiated performance at the Surf Ballroom. Buddy Holly arrived frustrated. The tour's transportation conditions were awful, and he faced a 365-mile drive to Moorhead, Minnesota. Fed up with the long, freezing routes between shows, he chartered a flight to Fargo, North Dakota, for him and his band to be picked up before the next gig in Moorhead. This would give them time to rest, and he wouldn't have to endure the freezing bus temperatures. The flight's pilot was Hubert Dwyer, a 21-year-old who had dedicated his life to flying. After the show, Big Bopper Richardson and Richie Valens asked Waylon Jennings and guitarist Tommy Allsup for their seats on the plane. They both had the flu and needed the rest. When Buddy learned that Waylon had agreed to give up his seat, he said, I hope your old bus freezes. And Jennings replied, well, I hope your old plane crashes. It would haunt Waylon for the rest of his life. Valens and Allsup flipped a coin to see who would get in the seat. Valens won, 
and is reported to have said, that's the first time I've ever won anything in my life. The plane was boarded and took off at 12.55 a.m. The weather was reported as light snow. However, it was deteriorating along the flight path. Around 1 a.m., the plane's taillight descended and eventually disappeared. The tower was unable to establish radio contact. Later in the morning, another flight took off to trace the flight path of Dwyer's plane. They found the wreckage at 9.35 a.m., roughly six miles northeast of the airport. It had hit the ground at approximately 170 miles per hour, and Holly and Valen's bodies lay near the wreckage, having been ejected. Richardson had been thrown across a nearby fence into a neighboring cornfield. The pilot remained in the wreckage. All of them had died instantly. Back in New York, Maria Holly heard of her husband's death via newscast and suffered a miscarriage shortly thereafter. Her discovering of her husband's death through the radio inspired the adoption of next-of-kin notification laws. The Big Bopper left behind a widow and two children, while 17-year-old Valens left behind his high school sweetheart and a large grieving family. The deaths of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and Big Bopper Richardson were the pinnacle of rock and roll losing its first crop of heroes as well as its innocence. The prior year, Little Richard had renounced playing secular music and returned to the ministry. Jerry Lee Lewis had come under scandal from marrying his 13-year-old cousin, and Elvis would join the army. Before the year was out, Chuck Berry would be arrested for transporting a youth of 14 across state lines for immoral purposes. Rock lost its first crop of revolutionaries who would soon be replaced by parent-friendly entertainers who offered record companies a safer form of revenue. It would also set into motion a cycle of reinvention where the safe would be replaced by innovation and defiance until being adopted and commercialized when the cycle would begin anew. The first rock and roll era came to an end with the crash, but rock was far from dead. Thanks for tuning in. Join me next week when we discuss the early innovators of rock and roll and who truly is the king of the early rock and roll era. We'll see you next time on The Music Scope. I'm Mike Rowe.